0: Christmas has gotten a little crazy, hasn't it? Amen? It's a little crazy. I mean, you've got stuff going on all the time. Things are happening. Parties are going on. Uh, events are happening. Events are being planned. Gifts have to be bought. Gifts have to be wrapped. Gifts have to be placed under the tree. This past uh, Friday, we went uh, out to eat on Friday night. And we went to a local restaurant and we sat down to eat. And the waitress comes up and I don't know what we look like. But apparently we looked pretty frazzled because she said, well, have y'all been out shopping all day? I thought I need to check myself in the mirror and see what was happening there. But I said, no, we've just been running some errands. But I assumed by her question that everybody was shopping. How's your Christmas shopping coming? Everybody got it done? It is December 2nd. You've only got 23 days left, all right? I read this week that people are going to spend less and buy more gifts this year. They did a survey, and they determined that people are going to spend less money but buy more gifts this year. So basically that means you're not getting stuff that's as good as what you got last year, all right? But they found out that people are so into buying gifts that they're going to spend whatever it takes to get the gifts they want or whatever they think they need, and in fact they said they might cut back on giving to charities and churches this year, so they can make sure they get the good gifts. Now here's where the really hard part comes for some of you. It's not the gift buying. It's not the gift wrapping. It's when you've got a gift that has been bought and wrapped and placed under the tree with your name on it. And you have to wait to open it. Let me see your hands. How many of you here are Christmas package shakers? How many shakers we got? All right, the rest of you are probably lying a little bit. You know what I'm talking about. You shake it, you try to get it, you try to figure it out, you determine what your list was and what's there, and all the gifts are under the tree, and they just sit there. This year is going to be interesting for us. We have two young boys, and both of them kind of grasped that there are things happening around that tree, and we put our tree up in the last few days, and Luke has already determined that we can't put anything on the bottom of the tree. And so our tree will only be decorated from about four foot high and up. And the thing that we sometimes have a problem with is waiting, right? It's waiting for Christmas. It's waiting for that day. It's waiting for whatever in our life might be coming. And Christmas is an extended illustration of the importance of waiting. This Christmas, you're going to have gifts under a tree. You're going to have moments that you're ready to see happen. You're going to be excited about things to come. And it's going to be about waiting. This morning in the Advent moment, we talked about Simeon who waited for a long time, who waited towards the end of his life. In fact, when he sees the baby Jesus, he gets so excited, he says, I am officially done, my life is complete, you can take me when you want to, God. It's done. You can take me. I've had all I need. I'm done. I'm out. Let me go. And the reason that he was able to say his time was done, it was over, is because all that he had hoped for had been fulfilled and his hope was assured. How good are you at waiting? I read this week about a uh, test that was done by some psychologists and some researchers back in the 1970s. And they brought four-year-old children into a room. And they took the four-year-old children and they sat them across the table from them and they sat there and they would ask them a question and, or ask them to do something. And whenever they did what they were asked or they answered correctly, they were given a marshmallow. And so they gave them a marshmallow time after time when they made the correct answer or did the right thing. And then, and always at some point in the questioning, a knock would come on the door. And as the knock would come on the door, someone would peek in and tell the researcher they needed to see her or him for just a minute. And so the researcher would go outside the door, but as he was leaving, he would tell the four-year-old child, listen, I'm going to put one marshmallow on the table here. Don't eat the marshmallow. If I come back and the marshmallow is still sitting on the table, when I get back, you'll get two marshmallows. If I come back and the marshmallow is gone, the only marshmallow you get is the one you ate. And then the researcher would leave for ten minutes. They said what was interesting to watch the children that didn't eat the marshmallow, some of them went right after it, grabbed it and ate it before anything could happen. But to see how they sang songs to themselves, they tried to divert their attention in other places, they did anything they could to keep their mind off of eating that marshmallow. Here's the interesting thing they found out about those people. They tracked them for the next 30 years. Those kids that were able to withstand and not eat the marshmallow became kids that adjusted society better. They became kids that had more prolonged lives. They were kids that had better careers. They were kids that scored 210 points higher on their SATs than those that ate the marshmallow. The researchers came to understand that sometimes in our lives, waiting develops character within us. And what Simeon had in that moment is he had waited and he had waited and he had waited for this moment to come. And as he did, he stood before the Lord, it tells us, righteous and devout, ready for whatever would come. And as he stands there, his hope is fulfilled, his joy is complete, and he says, my life can be taken. I'm done. What does it mean that Jesus has come into our world. I'm going to help some of you out, because some of you would like to unwrap a gift every week until Christmas, right? Some of you would think that would be all right. Kids would probably love that. When I was growing up, we, had, we could open one gift on Christmas Eve. That was our deal. We got to pick it out from the tree. Well, over the next few weeks, what we're going to do is, we're going to unwrap every week a different gift that comes in Jesus coming to earth. And the first gift that we're going to unwrap is the gift of hope. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to kind of a strange place for a Christmas sermon, John chapter 6. And it may not be the kind of the kind of passage that you would immediately think of as being a Christmas sermon. But I want you to see what is meant by hope. You know, sometimes when we talk about hope. We think of pie in the sky or, or uh, a wish list or things that are out there that we wish we could attain. What are you hoping for? What are you wishing for? What are you thinking about? But hope is much more than just wishful thinking. Hope is a certain assurance in who you are. It's a settledness about what you're doing. It's a belief that everything is going to be okay in a sure foundation. And in John chapter 6, we have a very interesting story about hope. Now let me set the scene for you because I think it's an interesting passage in the midst of several interesting passages. If you look at the beginning of John chapter 6, it's not where we're going to concentrate, but you have this story of Jesus feeding 5,000 people. Just a few people, 5,000 or so, and he gets together and you know the story. They're sitting there, he's talking, he's preached so long, the people are hungry. And so he says, what do we have to feed these people? And they said, we don't have anything. We need to just let them go. And Jesus, we don't have well, we've got this little boy that's got a, you know a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread, but it's not much. And Jesus says, "Bring it to me." He prays over it, and it multiplies and multiplies and multiplies to the point where just a couple of uh, a fish, a couple of loaves of bread suddenly become 12 basketfuls of bread and of fish that are overflowing. And so you have this unbelievable miracle, and the people think, "This is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting on." And it tells us in scripture that Jesus dismisses them because he doesn't want them to become king. And they still plot and think we've got to make this guy king. It's his time. It's time to take him to Jerusalem. It's time for him to set up his kingdom. And Jesus sends the disciples on across the lake and he dismisses the crowd and spends some time with the Father. It tells us that in the night, while the wind is buffeting us, a passage we talked about for two weeks recently, that Jesus comes walking out on the water to the apostles, and he gets out to them, and you know the story. Peter walks on the water with him. Peter starts to fall. Jesus picks him up, puts him back in the boat. They talk about this. The disciples worship him. The apostles are following him. And suddenly, it is Jesus' two greatest miracles so far are performed back to back. On verse 25 is an interesting little verse it says when they found him on the other side that's the crowds because the crowds got in the boats and they went over to the other side and it says when they got to the other side they asked rabbi when did you get here and jesus realizes they've come to find him because they want to make him king And so you have all these people gathered around. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. They love Him because He's feeding their bellies. The disciples are amazed because He controls the wind and the waves and the water, and He walks on top of it. They get to the other side, and this is His coronation moment. This is His great speech. This is like He has won the presidential primary, and He is stepping to the podium to deliver the message that will be transmitted to all the people so that everyone in the country will understand how great of a candidate He is for the Messiah for the Christ, for the Chosen One of God, who will take over everything they know in Israel and bring the nation back to its rightful inheritance that had been prophesied about for thousands of years. This is a big moment in the life of Jesus. And this is what I love. He tells them in verse 26, and we're not going to go verse by verse by through this, but he says, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. He says, listen, you only like me because I fed you. That's why we feed so much in a Baptist church, amen? People like you a lot more if there's food. I found that out. And so he goes on to talk about this, and he starts to talk about all this is happening. And they ask him about the signs, and they ask him about the wonders. And he comes to the point where he begins to talk about all of this happening. And he tells him in verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. And then you get down to verse 48. Verse 48. And he starts talking about this manna. And he's giving this great acceptance speech, if you will. And he says in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which men may eat and not die. I am the living bread. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. this bread is my flesh, which I will give you life for the world. Now I want you to think for a minute. Those of us that have grown up in church, those of us who have been around church, we understand what he's talking about here when he says he is the bread of life and his body is the flesh. We understand the Lord's Supper. We're on the other side of that. We understand that he is going to give his life for us. We understand that he's saying that we need to partake in the life that he offers. But to these people, what they hear is, if you are going to be part of my kingdom, if you want me to be your leader, you've got to eat my body. Look at what it says in verse 52. They began, the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his body to eat? They took it literally. And so here you have Jesus on his most important moment, his most important time, his most important day, his most important speech, and he comes out with his first big point, if you're going to follow me, you've got to eat my body. Here's the second thing he says. Verse 53 i tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh, he says it again, of the Son of Man, and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Now here's what happens. Jesus stands up before him. He's just done these great miracles. He's just done this moment of unbelievable thing. He's about to be coordinated. The apostles are excited because they've got their positions lined up in the kingdom rule. All the people are excited. They were there when the Messiah said he was going to take over. Everything's excited. He says, listen, if you're going to be a part of my followers, if you're going to do what I ask you to do, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to eat my body and you've got to drink my blood. Verse 60. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, now that's not the twelve apostles, that's the larger group of disciples. This is hard teaching. Who can accept it? And then look at verse 66. Jesus goes on to say, listen, you've got to do that, you've got to understand, this is what it's going to take to follow me. Verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Now here's the picture I want you to get in your mind. You're his apostles, his 12, his closest friends. You saw him feed the 5,000. You've seen him walk on water. As the people are gathering and finding him over there, the words begin to spread about him walking on the water because the apostles are telling everybody, you won't believe what happened last night. You all got over here on boats. He came walking. You wouldn't believe what it was like. You should have been out there on the lake. You should have seen Peter. He got out there and then he started to fall. It was an amazing thing. And beginning through the whole crowd, it begins to spread. Jesus stands up and says, alright, you want me, this is what's going to have to happen. You're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And suddenly there's grumbling and the rumbling of he's got to be the Messiah. He walked on water. He's an amazing guy. Suddenly becomes, what did he just say? And the apostles are in there going, somebody get a hold of him. Peter, go up there and tell him to stop. Imagine, if you will, at that primary election speech, that great one at the convention, Democratic or Republican, it doesn't matter. They're standing up there and he begins to talk just insane about things. You can imagine the handlers and the people that are in charge going, somebody get him down. And as he continues and is adamant about it, people start to leave. I don't know if you've ever been a part of something like this, but you got a crowd built and you begin to talk and suddenly little bit by little bit people start to leave. And the crowd that was thousands become hundreds and the crowd that was hundreds becomes a few. And it says in Scripture that at the end of that, after many left and never came back, Jesus turns to the twelve. And He looks them right in the eye and He says, Here's your chance. Do you want to go to?" Don't you want to go with them? He says, You just heard what I said. You just saw what I did. You know I wasted this moment. You know I'm smart enough to know this was my moment. Do you want to go? Do you want to leave? Is it time to see you go? And he says, If you want to leave, now is the time. This is the decision. It is here or it is there. It is black or it is white. It is my side or it's the other side. It's us or them. This is the defining moment of your life, disciples, 12 apostles. This is your moment to decide what am I going to do? Am I following Jesus or am I going back to where I was? And in the midst of that, Peter gives one of the greatest statements of hope I have ever seen. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? We have believed and have known that You are the Christ, the Son of God, and You hold the words of Of eternal life. What he says is. We have nowhere else. If our hope is placed in you. And you turn out not to be who we think you are. Then we are done. It is over. Because there is no other alternative. There is nothing else coming down that road. It is you or nothing. And our hope is placed in you. Now what I want to do in the remaining time we have this morning. Is to break down that statement. And to look at three things that Peter says in that statement that help us to understand what true hope is about in a Christmas season. The first thing is this, when he says, we have believed and have known that you are the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ. What he's telling us is, we have believed and known that you are the one that's going to come forgive our sins. And what you can write on your handout, if you have one, or write on a sheet of paper somewhere, that the reason that we have hope this Christmas is because our failures are not final. Here's what Peter was saying. Listen, Master. Listen, Jesus, Rabbi, Teacher. What you have to understand is we have been in this system of guilt and shame and offering and sacrifice. We have been through this whole thing of trying to understand why we do what we do and why we have what we have. And we have come to understand that we are going to mess up a whole lot. That we are going to sin all the time. And that we cannot do this on our own. The truth is, you and I will fail more than we succeed in life. We will fail more than we succeed in life. Left to our own ability, our own desires, our own wants, we will fail more than we succeed. There was a commercial on TV several years ago that had Michael Jordan, many consider, most consider to be the greatest basketball player to ever live. And in this commercial, Michael Jordan is talking about what his life has been like. And he says in the commercial, I have missed over 9,000 shots. I have lost more than 300 games. I have been given the opportunity 26 times to shoot the game-winning shot and have missed. He said, I fail a lot, and that's the reason I succeed. What Peter is saying to him when he says that we have believed and have known, we we have trusted that you are the Son of God, the Messiah is, that we are trusting that you are bringing a better way to forgive us of our sins because we can't be captive to our past. And one of the greatest messages of hope in any Christmas season, particularly for you this Christmas season, is no matter what your past is, no matter what you have done, no matter who you were, the truth is that because of Christmas and Emmanuel and God coming to be with us, that your failures are not final. Now, I'm just now getting to know some of you. Just now getting to talk with you and understand you and move past the, uh, the, the part where it's kind of superficial and getting to know some of you. But the truth is, I don't know many of you very well. And I have no idea what your past is like. I have no idea what your present is like. I don't know what you've been involved in. I don't know what you've been a part of. I don't know what you've done. And in some ways, I'm glad about that. Some of you are real glad about that. But the truth is that Scripture teaches us that no matter who you were or what you've done or where you've been, if you will be willing to trust in Jesus as your Savior, then and only then will your failures be wiped away. That is hope. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is a verse that I've already told you about, a verse that you know, most of you do. But it tells us in Scripture That Christ removed our sins and He removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Can't get to it. It tells us that our sins are at the bottom of the ocean floor. And what that means is not that they're literally on the bottom of the ocean floor. It says in the Scripture it's at the bottom of the ocean. The truth is, in their day and time, they thought the ocean was never ending. And so that means you can't ever get down and fish it out. That means you can't ever get low enough to find it. You can't get in a low enough to get down there and find it. You can't find your sin. When you begin to talk to God about your sin, He says, What sin? I don't remember it. I don't remember what you did because I have chosen to forget it. I have chosen to, and I love this phrase, remember it no more. Now here's the thing that makes God great and us not. Have you ever tried to forget something? I'm going to put that out of my mind. I'm not going to think about it. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to do anything about it. It's just going to be gone. Gone from my mind. What happens? It's in your mind, right? Right? You think about it, you worry about it, you fret over it. It happens all the time. I'm not going to worry about this. And the next day you wake up and you're worrying about it. I'm not going to worry about it. And then you're worrying about the fact that you're worrying about it. Right? And before long you're worrying about the fact that you're worrying about the fact that you're worrying about it. And it just kind of grows because we don't have the ability to remember things no more. God does. And when it comes to your sins and your failures, if you have accepted Christ as your Savior because of what He did in Jesus in the birth, in the life, in the death, in the resurrection, if you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, you remember your failures a lot better than God does. Our failures are not final. Now here's a great thing about that. Not only does it mean that we can have our past removed or wiped away, it means that experiences from then we can use to minister now. I read about Charles Colson. You know who Charles Colson is, most of you. If you grew up in the '50s, '60s, '70s, you know Watergate. Watergate happened before my time, but I've read about it some places. And in Watergate, Charles Colson was one of the main cogs in Watergate. He was arrested in Watergate, and he was put in jail. And as in that jail, in that experience of going to jail, actually in a driveway of a guy's house who had ministered to him, had witnessed to him, Charles Colson accepted Christ as his Savior. And Charles Colson went on to start a Prison Fellowship Ministry. Charles Colson has done great work for the Kingdom of God. He's a great speaker, communicator, promise keepers, uh, all kinds of conferences. He tours the country doing that and does an unbelievable job. Charles Colson tells the stories of being at a prison one Easter in Delaware. And he's sitting around at Delaware in this prison and he's talking to the inmates. He's having stories with them and he's getting ready to preach. And as the music starts and everybody quiets down, God just kind of talks to him in that moment. And Charles Colson starts thinking about all the things he accomplished in his life. His degrees and the way that he ascended into the top levels of government. The way that he had a resume that would impress anybody, would be amazing to anybody. And he sat there in the middle of the Delaware State Penitentiary and he thought to himself, you know, I've got the most unbelievable resume you could ever imagine. But the only reason I can stand here today and communicate with these guys is because of my biggest failure in life. The only thing they care about is that I'm an ex-con. And he thought in that moment, God spoke to him and said, oftentimes I'll use your greatest failures for your greatest ministry. Now let me just say, that doesn't mean you need to go out and try to fail, All right? That doesn't mean you need to go out and find some sin you want to engage in and say, see, I'm going to let God deliver me from this, and then He'll use it in a mighty way. That's not the way it works. But in your past, God redeems it to the point where He uses it. Peter says, we can't go anywhere. We don't have anywhere to go because you are the ones we have trusted and believed that you are the Son of God, the one that will make our failures not final. Here's the second reason Peter didn't want to leave. It's not because our failures are not final, but secondly, also because our life now has meaning. Our life has meaning. This is what I love about the first statement he says. Where else can we go? Where else can we go? I mean, you have to look at the group of apostles that are there. You've got fishermen. You've got zealots. You've got uh, government officials that were Matthew, the tax collectors. You've got guys that are from all walks of life, all different kinds, that laid everything down to go. I mean, Matthew, really. If Matthew wanted to go back to tax collected, I don't think they would take him back. Peter and his brother would have some explaining to do when they went back to their dad. Simon the Zealot would have some people wondering why in the world he was leaving their cause and going with this other guy with all these people that weren't of the same group with him. People were saying, where else can we go? Because you are the one we have trusted and our lives have never meant this much. I want you to think about Peter for a minute. Day after day in his life, he went out on the boat and he fished. Now there's some of you in here that like to fish. I've talked to some of you. I've eaten some fish you've caught. From one of you? It was good. You like to fish. I like to eat fish. That's the way it works. Some of you like to fish and it's an important thing to you. But I would guess that being someone that your life is built around whether you catch fish or not. And every day all you do all day long for work is to fish. fish would not, fishing would not be as enjoyable of a job as if you're just out on the bank having a good time. There's a show on television called The World's Deadliest Catch. I've never seen a full show because I can't stand to watch all of it. But it's about people going out and fishing, and they're going out fishing for different things, and they're finding, and they're in these terrible terrains. You have to understand that where Peter fished would have terrible storms at times, would have ridiculous conditions at times, and he had left all of that behind. And he leaves all of that behind, where it's just him and his family on a boat, and they're fishing, and he follows this guy, and he begins to understand him, and to follow him, and to trust him. And as he grows, he sees the miracles he performs. He sees all that he is doing. He sees the crowds come. When Jesus gets through with the crowds, he always comes back to Peter and his friends and explains all that's going on. Peter understands that he has latched his star to the greatest man who has ever lived. And he says, my life has no meaning if it doesn't relate to you. And the truth is, the same is true for all of us. No matter where you came from, no matter what you've done, no matter what your job is, if you are doing a job outside of doing it for the glory of Jesus Christ, then you have hitched your wagon to the wrong place. Because our life has no meaning outside of Him. But here's the great thing about Christmas. If He had never come, our life would be completely meaningless. Have you read Ecclesiastes lately? You want to be depressed. Read the first few chapters of Ecclesiastes. Over and over again, life is vanity. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't have any clue. It doesn't have any meaning. It's just nothing. Over and over and over again. It's nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing. And you get to the last part and he says, here's what I've determined. That the only purpose life has is to fear God and follow His commands. And what Peter saw in the coming of Jesus is that he had someone he could fear and follow. And he says, where else can I go? Os Guinness in his book, The Call, tells the story of an Oxford business conference he attended. And as he went to the conference, the guy that got up to speak was a wealthy man that had a big company. And he began to speak by saying, Most of you in this room know I have accumulated all the wealth you can imagine. Most of you in this room know that I'm considered one of the greatest business successes of this generation. Most of you in this room know that I have done a lot in my life of great accomplishment, but the one thing I've never been able to do. And Os Guinness said when he said that, he stopped and paused. He choked up a little bit and a tear began to run down his cheek. He said, The one thing I've never been able to do is to find the meaning behind all of this. And I would give every penny I've ever made to know why I'm here. I read that story and I couldn't help but think of Peter, who was a guy that literally gave up everything he had because he discovered in a moment the reason he was here. And to tell you the truth, until you come to that moment when you say, I would give up every I have to follow Jesus you have not got to the moment where you completely understand your purpose in life the great thing about Jesus coming is that our life now has meaning our past has been washed away and a purpose has been given for us and the third thing is this is because we have hope because our future is secure our future is secure Peter says in there, he says, we've trusted in you. I have nowhere else to go. You are the whole meaning of my life. You have made sure my failures are not final. And lastly, lastly, Jesus, you are the ones that have hope for eternal life, for a future that is secure. And the best thing about Christmas is this, is that we are promised in the coming of Jesus to earth In God's Son going from heaven to earth, we are promised the ability to go from earth to heaven. From God's Son going from immortal to mortal, we are allowed ourselves to go from mortal to immortal. We have exchanged God's godliness, unblemished record, for our sinfulness in ourselves. And because of that, we have hope. Stories told of Samuel Morrison, who was a missionary for 25 years all over the world. He retired as a missionary and he came back on a freighter, just happened to be coming back on a cruise liner, excuse me, with Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt. Back when presidents traveled by boat, Teddy Roosevelt had taken a little uh, trip over to Africa and hunted animals for a while. And they got back on the boat and they were coming back. And was Samuel Morrison, this missionary of 25 years, and Teddy Roosevelt is there. And they're coming back and they come into New York's harbor. And it looks like the entire city of New York is there. They got bands playing. They got streamers. They got parades. They got people waiting. They got signs. Welcome home, Teddy. Welcome back, President. We love to have you back. And he says that while he's there, the missionary of 25 years has a time alone with God. And he says, Can you see that? He said that president went away for two and a half to three weeks to shoot animals and look at the reception he's got. I gave my life for 25 years to the missionary calls and nobody's here to greet me. Nobody's here to welcome me home. He said in that moment, God just spoke to his spirit and said, here's the problem, you're not home yet. And the reception you're going to get is going to make this look small. You see, the great thing about Christmas is that we have real hope because no matter how terrible life gets here, we know that we know that we know because of our relationship with Him that this is not all there is. And that one day it says, Then we are absent from the body, whether that is because we have died here physically or whether that is Christ returns for us, that whenever that happens, we know that we are going to be absent from this body and we are going to be raised to new life with Him. What's your hope placed in? You see, the things about Christmas is you can get wrapped up in the gifts and the clothing and the, and the parties and the, the events and the church musicals and the church parties and the church services and the Advent candle and the Advent ceremony. And you can get caught up in all of that stuff and just make it about tradition and tradition and events and completely miss out on the true gifts of Christmas. And you can sit around your tree on, Sunday, on Christmas morning and you can have all your presents unwrapped and you can have them laid out there before you and you can think all about all that is there and how wonderful it is and how great it is and how awesome it is, the Christmas that you've had and you can still miss every bit of what God intends for you. And this Christmas, one of the gifts I know that He wants you to unwrap is the gift of hope. I don't know what that means for you. Maybe for you, you're somebody here that has never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. And as a result, that you have a past that has been dogging you, that has been worrying you, that has been tracking you down. And this morning is the time that you finally say, I have accepted Christ or I need to do that so that my past can be forgiven, so my failures are not final, so that I can move forward with you, God. Maybe you're a Christian here today and the devil just keeps bringing your past up. And you keep thinking that God's reminding you of it when it's the enemy of your soul doing it. And you need to say today that I am claiming in this place that because of my relationship with Christ, that my past doesn't matter. My past is gone. And I'm going to leave it there. And this Christmas, the hope I'm going to trust in is that my failures are not final. Maybe you're here today and you're a believer who has never truly latched on to the true purpose of your life. And you're learning all over the place. You're thinking about all kinds of stuff. You're, you're going after all kinds of things, but you've never latched it to the purpose of following Jesus. You've never come to that moment when you've said, where else do I have to go? And this morning is a time when you say, Lord, I'm ready to do whatever you call, whatever that means. I'm ready to give it all up. Maybe you're here this morning. And you're going through one of those times that's just difficult. You know your past is gone. You've trusted Jesus and you're moving forward in your purpose for Him. But you've got one of those moments that's just tough. And you just need the assurance of what God is going to do in eternity for you. And this morning, you need to know that your future is secure. In just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. Whatever the Lord might lead you to do. Whatever the Lord might need you to do or want you to do or call you to do, the question is... Will you be obedient? You see, I truly believe, just as he looked at Peter and the other 12 and he said to them, Do you not want to leave also? I believe that he looks at each and every one of us on a regular basis and gives us the opportunity to be obedient or to not be obedient. And this morning, I believe that in this invitation time, he is going to say some of you, are you going to follow or are you not? Are you going to trust me or are you not? Are you going to leave all the worries in the past or are you not? And it's a moment of decision. And my prayer is this morning that when that comes for you, that you will be obedient to him and follow his will. Would you pray with me?